Talk Recorded live. Hey, welcome to the Saturday call, uh, American Liberties call regarding uh, mainly plaintiff. Today is going to be the plaintiff versus defendant, and um, which is the position we always take. And anyhow, because being a defendant, you're just you know you're answering their questions and their posture instead of you producing your own and having your own. And when you, uh, whether you uh, go after them or they come after you and you then you turn the tables on them and start asking them questions, how does sec- Section 83 apply in your determination that I even owe an income tax? Or if they're relating to a certain statute, how do you determine that statute applies to me? Because when you when you read David's uh, uh, David Maryland's criminal complaint, especially in the memorandum of law that you get when you uh, join the, uh, as a co-complainant, you understand his arguments and you understand the argument of. You're not the guy that is mentioned in the statutes, and, uh, and that's a powerful position to be in because they got to. If if that is never brought up, the presumption is that you're you're a taxpayer or you owe a tax. But when you use the statutes, you know how everybody says, "Well, statutes don't apply to me," but they don't prove it. They're just making a a frivolous statement. But if you can prove that the statutes don't apply to you, and you can, and they can't prove otherwise, guess who wins? Okay, so yeah, but but you got to stand on your feet, you got to stand solid, and you got to know that you know what you know in order to to argue against them, and don't let them loose. And when they and when they try to override you, say, "Wait a minute, we we have to get back to to Genesis here." You know, you didn't answer the question. We can't go any further until this question has been answered. And don't let them off the hook. And keep objecting, especially if you're in court. But if you're in a letter writing and everything, you're at a good point. You're at you're at a good you're in a good position to start writing them. Uh, you know questions, and and just take you know to end all arguments. Don't get into Title Four, Section Seventy Two, and 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 you can hover around. You know I'm not named by statutes if you want, but this argument right here, or this the code breaker, the Section Eighty Three equation, if. You read this and you understand this. You, they can't go any further, even if you were a federal citizen. You worked for the federal government. You get a federal check, and your name is Joe Fed Federal. Okay, I mean you can't get any more federal employee or whatever. How does Section eighty three? How did you determine? using Section 83 that I owe an income tax? That's a powerful question. And the author of that, the founder, I call him the founder of it because even the IRS wrote it and the courts support it, 
even the commissioner supports it, they still want to ignore it. They still want you not to know how strong this argument is. So with that being said, here is a guy that somehow, by God's gift, he could, he read the he read this section and says, "Wow," and went further and did all this research for you to get a hold of Dave Merlin. Are you on the call? Yeah, Chris, here I am. Can everybody hear me? Yes, they can. Okay. Um, the uh, first things first, nothing you'll hear me say is intended as legal advice. Anything that sounds like that to you, just consider it something somebody else might do on a planet far, far away where the law matters. It doesn't matter here. I prove it on a daily basis. Believe that. And the IRS did not write Section 83. That was a miss speak by Chris, it's Congress. Congress enacted Section 83. And uh, the courts and the IRS, general counsel, everybody agrees. It applies to all compensation for services. It explains how to tax it. It governs the taxation of compensation. And it provides for the determination of what is to be included in gross income, period. And uh, you can find the case sites and excerpts from those cases on wevgov.com. Uh, wevgov.com on the federal income taxation page has a, a very compressed description of two arguments, how uh, Social Security is theft, doesn't apply to Americans, citizens of the United States. You see, I start with a traverse. That's the citizenship they call me. And so I acquiesce to that because once I'm a citizen of the United States, uh, I've lost all of my other arguments and I'm forced to argue tax law that's when I start. I don't make other arguments. These arguments are designed to operate once you've lost all of your other challenges. And when you've lost all your other challenges, you'll be required to argue tax law. And when you look at the tax code and you set about analyzing the tax code under all the maxims of statutory interpretation, the canons of statutory interpretation and construction, you find that the tax code is perfect. It's never been written to apply to citizens of the United States. And so I acquiesce first by saying, okay, that's my citizenship. Therefore, I can't be the citizen in Social Security chapters because those definitions of citizen expressly exclude citizens of the United States. And for the latecomers, wevgov.com has those statutory definitions right there on the uh, on the federal income taxation page. And uh, what it does for me to argue this way is, first things first, okay, the tax code applies to me. I'm a citizen of the United States. Now let's see how the tax code operates. First things first, I know that I'm not 
in the Social Security chapter's definition of citizen. And I know there's a bunch of other statutory proof that Social Security doesn't even apply to Americans. And so, uh, Chris, people are complaining that they aren't getting any sound, that they have no audio. Okay, let me look. Um, Let's see. Uh, Guest 8, no audio. Um, The ones are on the chat. How about you, Guest 10? Do you hear us? Richard, do you hear us? Richard says he's not getting any sound via the web, and we've had several people uh, kill their web contact and phone in. See all the phone contacts there? Yeah. Welcome to the call, Teramax 66. We're getting audio problems squared away. The call is underway. We'll be with you in just a second. Um, Why don't you, Chris, type into the chat instruction to call in if they have any audio problems. Sounds like talk show is kind of twitchy today, and I'll just keep talking. Okay. Uh, So the first thing I do to argue tax law and... Anyone that uh, comes on to the call, understand, if you don't stay for the whole thing, it's being tape recorded, and there's an entire archive where Chris and I are here pretty much twice a week for the last several months discussing the same topics, and that is how to argue the tax code. And uh, I've been at this a long, long time. Uh, since 1994 when my treatise on the tax code was complete. And my my research has nothing in common with anything else that's argued out there. Uh, trust me on that one. WeVGov.com, W-E-V-G-O-V, WeVGov.com, has these arguments on the federal income taxation page. I can't be the citizen in the chapters that impose Social Security. They expressly exclude citizens of the United States. And I argue that I'm a citizen of the United States just so they'll shut up about citizen. They expect you to argue citizenship. They expect you to argue you're a non-resident alien because by and large, everybody argues that. And instead, I say, oh no, I'm a citizen of the United States. Sure. And therefore, I can't be subject to chapters 2, 21, and 23, Social Security Self-Employed, Social Security Employee, or FICA, or Chapter 23, Federal Unemployment Tax Act. And so I know the controversy is about Chapter 1. It's the only chapter left. And when I look at Chapter 1, I go to the statutory definition of citizen in Chapter 1, and there is no statutory definition of citizen. And so, to this point, we still don't have a tax code that applies to Americans, citizens of the United States, like they say I am. And so, I make the challenge that, excuse me, but I haven't been named in a statute. The 16th Amendment says Congress can lay and collect this tax. And way back when, they saw this problem, and so they wrote regulation. It's under Section 1 of the tax code where you find all the uh, all the tax brackets for the married individual filing jointly, separately, head of household, surviving spouse, single individual, trusts, and capital gains. But in that statute, it doesn't mention the citizenship of anybody either. 
and under Section 1, 26 CFR 1.1-1, a regulation. They said, who owes this tax? Oh, citizens of the United States. Who's that? Well, that's any person born or naturalized in the United States and subject to its jurisdiction. Do they owe the tax wherever they live? Oh, yes, wherever resident, they owe this tax. It's just a regulation. And on wevgov.com, wevgov.com, on the federal income taxation page, you'll see the entire text of Section 1 of the tax code. You'll see the regulation. Compare the two. The statute doesn't mention anyone's citizenship. It mentions individuals. Well, that could be the individual in the Social Security chapters, and I know that's not me. So, you also see 40 decisions cited in an excerpt taken from each one of those 40 decisions where the court was faced with the challenge, hey, I'm a non-resident alien, you're the federal government, limited scope of authority, and the court says, wrong, citizen breath, here's section one that imposes the income tax, and here's the regulation that says citizens of the United States owe it. You're a citizen of the United States. You admit that you're you're living in Georgia or Colorado or whatever. Forty decisions that rely on that regulation. And no one had the wherewithal because they're learning from people who are in the movement. No one had the wherewithal to say, uh, excuse me, but that's just a regulation. Do you have a statute that names me as subject? in violation of the 16th Amendment that says only Congress can lay and collect this tax. I'm only implicated by regulation if I'm a citizen of the United States in violation of the 16th Amendment. And it's been sitting there right in front of everybody forever. And it's an argument that proves the tax, that if basically if they open their mouths to you about Title 26, how are they not? engaged in a conspiracy against your rights with their boss, the district director, the secretary of the treasury, the commissioner of IRS, whoever. How are they not engaged in a conspiracy against your rights to property? 18 U.S.C., Section 241, conspiracy against rights, 10 years in prison. It's a felony. Go to the federal... Uh, the federal criminal statutes page on wevgov.com go to the citizens arrest page on wevgov.com and try to tell me that if an internal revenue service employee at any level mentions the tax code to you as a citizen of the United States how are they not a felon if they open their mouths to you all the case law and your state statutes say you can arrest them. What were you thinking? Opening your mouth to me about the tax code. Checkmate. No one else teaches this. No one else has gotten into the law as far as I've gotten into the law. So, uh, if you want a fast track to moving forward. The movement does not move. I've been watching it since 1990. It hasn't moved since. 
there are still people arguing UCC. Excuse me, enforcement is not commercial activity. Why are you using the UCC? Well, it's because of the Redfield Doctrine, uh, Clearfield Doctrine. Spare me. There's even a, a Lowell Beecraft just came out with an essay about how um, the uh, incorporation of the United States in like 1871 was repealed just a few years after that. And everybody's still arguing it. Everybody's still arguing non-resident alien. I got a 1992 memorandum from a chief judge that obliterates the argument. And people are still teaching it. The movement does not move. And the people they con into following them, I'm talking about these gurus with curriculums and everything else out there and courses and, and prescriptions for what you should do, their people still go to prison. That's not progress. That's not a move forward. And when you go to prison, you find out they're so ignorant of the law they couldn't even sue in small claims court. They've never written a pleading in their lives. And they're utterly naive about who they face when they go to court. Every judge is as corrupt as the day is long. And once you're in their court, they're going to win because they cheat. They lie and cheat. Every assistant U.S. attorney that's going to speak at a podium in a courtroom is paid to be a fire hose full of lies. And they point it at the judge and just fill the record with a whole bunch of untrue crap about you. It's their job. Their job is to lie their asses off to the judge. It's what they do. So uh, all these naive and bold-faced, ignorant, self-proclaimed tax gurus, I work at the other end of the spectrum for their victims. So I'm only named in a regulation. The IRS can't talk. The DOJ can't talk about 1.1-1 unless you claim non-resident alien status. But when you claim citizen of the United States and that's just a regulation, they can't talk about that provision at all despite the fact in 40 decisions the judge goes, excuse me, this regulation makes you liable. Well, it's just a regulation. Can you do that? Second argument, even if I were subject to the tax code, all I received was the value, the contract value, the fair market value of my personal services. How did Section 83 operate in your conclusion that I owe a tax on the value of my services? You can look and look and look. No one else is teaching Section 83. You'll find two people have plagiarized my briefing of Section 83. comes right out of my arguments, right out of my writings. And they don't give me credit for it. But in 1994, I wrote the manual on Section 83 almost a year ago. Last March, I added a 30-page epilogue to it and published it. And I'm the one that wrote the book on Section 83. You can't write anything about Section 83. I haven't already written. And... uh 
it strikes me, it, it slaps me in the face how everybody out there with uh, curriculum missed Section 83. It proves they'd never even read the tax code. Because when you read the tax code, you come to Section 83, and it says only the excess over the amount paid is gross income. And 61A, their favorite statute that says that everything is gross income, starts by saying, except as otherwise provided. Well, here's otherwise provided. There's a bunch of otherwise provided. If it's cost, it's deductible. Section 212, interest on your mortgage payments is deductible. I think it's 163. Uh, certain state taxes are deductible, 164. Uh, the wages that you pay an employee, if you're a sole proprietor or in business, a business operator can get a deduction for the wages that they pay out to employees, Section 162. There's a whole bunch of otherwise provided. But Section 83, you're not allowed to talk about that one. Why? It's because it takes the amount paid and puts it in the category of cost. They look at the amount paid the value of the labor, and they put it in the category of profit. And they can't even say that they train on Section 83. They ignore it. They don't train their employees on it. They're paid to be steamrollers, and they say everything's gross income, and go for it. We own the judges. Just keep going and go get their money. And Section 83 pokes a hole in that balloon. And all the air comes out. So with just those two arguments, and that's hardly the breadth of my treatise of 1994. There's a whole bunch of differences between the tax code and the IRS. But those two arguments, for the sake of insulation between you and the IRS, do all the heavy lifting. So uh, key on those two arguments uh, there are several others that are dynamite, but they don't come into play. Uh, they're just about the standard operating procedure of the IRS and not so much about racketeering and extortion, such as these first two arguments. So I wrote a 58-page memorandum in the fall of 2005 and put a 33-page criminal complaint on top of it and when I say criminal complaint, I write criminal complaints on par with Department of Justice criminal attorneys. I don't mean attorneys who are criminal. I mean uh, attorneys that work in the criminal tax division. And uh, I write as well or better than their attorneys. And I wrote a 33-page criminal complaint and supported it with a 58-page memorandum, several exhibits, a cover letter of 12 pages, and uh, here's what the IRS did to me. This is such a horror story. I want you to place it right beside all those other horror stories you heard. In the summer of 2005, they sent me a letter saying, Notice of change to your account for activities after October 22, 2004. We have penalized you for promoting abusive tax shelters under a statute that allows us to penalize you $1,000 or 20% of what we feel you would have made on your venture. Notice of change to your account. Amount of penalty, one penny. 
credit to your account. One penny. Amount you owe, zero. Please don't send a payment. If you want to challenge this penalty, you can sue us in U.S. District Court in the next 60 days. And then they did it again. Penalty of one penny. Credit to my account, one penny, which zeroed me out. Please don't send a payment. It's such a horror story, isn't it? Picture it. Here I am. Uh, they know who I am. They know I've got curriculums. I had websites, all that good stuff. And the the worst they could do to me was penalize me one penny and pay it for me. They're not allowed to penalize you zero. Think about it. They're not allowed to penalize you nothing. And I'm not going to pay $350 for a filing fee to go to U.S. District Court to challenge a penalty of zero. And they knew this. But I thought about it and saw through that what they wanted to do was to go to a grand jury later and say, you know, we penalized him twice and he didn't even complain. And so the last thing I wanted to do was remain somebody who had failed to complain. So I wrote this 33-page racketeering complaint, extortion, conspiracy against rights, uh, all these different crimes that are committed if, in fact, the tax code doesn't apply to citizens of the United States like me. And I wrote that cover letter, 12 pages, notarized and attached my exhibits to it, those two one-penny penalties, and uh, filed it with nearly 80 members of Congress January 1st of 06. The Certificate of the Service says uh, December 28th. Now, uh, I have to break for just a second. I live in Seattle, and so all winter long, I've got a runny nose. i got to blow my nose. Hang on. So they penalized me one penny, twice. Now, think about it. We've penalized you under a statute that authorizes a penalty of $1,000 or, well, they didn't penalize me $1,000, $1,000 or 20% of what we think you would have made off your venture. One penny is 20% of a nickel. So what you're telling me is you think I'll make a nickel off of what I'm doing, huh? Up yours too, servant breath. That was... That's really insulting. <laughs> we think you're going to make a nickel off of what you're doing there, and so we've penalized you 20% and paid it for you. Don't send a payment, and you can sue us in U.S. District Court. So I knew they don't, they wouldn't do that for nothing, and they wanted to go to a grand jury later and say we penalized him twice and he didn't complain. So I complained to Congress, and last August 27th, I filed a supplemental briefing to bring my complaint up to 2014 standards uh, because since then I found another case, Goodmanson versus United States. It's right there on wevgov.com on the income taxation page. And Goodmanson versus United States, Second Circuit, I think it was, says uh, 
at the heart of this case is Internal Revenue Code Section 83, which governs the taxation of property transferred in connection with the performance of services. And in 2007, Internal Revenue Ruling 2007-19, the IRS Chief Counsel says, uh, Section 83 provides for the determination of what is to be included in gross income when property is transferred to an employee or independent contractor in connection with the performance of services. And so I stuck, of course, those new sites in my supplemental briefing as well as a reflection on what the courts do when they're faced with Section 83 to show that there are different answers for the same brief. And when the government can't even settle on one answer to one statute, how can you expect the individual of ordinary intelligence to know how the law operates? So it's an argument in support of the claim that the tax code is void for vagueness. They go two different directions, three different directions. When you say I'm only named in a regulation, and they go multiple directions when you say, you deprive me of Section 83. And they can't talk about it. They will not mention the, the provisions relied upon, and they run from them. So my supplemental briefing last August, and along the way, uh, 2006 spring time, uh, Chris, our call sponsor, American Liberties, Chris, phoned me and said, uh, just heard your name from somebody that said you do good work. And uh, what have you got going? I said, I got this complaint I just filed in Congress. You want to join it as a similarly situated witness or victim? He said, yeah, the IRS is coming after me. And uh, he joined the complaint. And in summertime, the IRS Criminal Investigations Division cranked up the heat on him. So he served all of them a copy of... Uh, my complaint and his affidavit of joinder. And then in the fall, they convened a grand jury against him, and he served all the local U.S. attorneys with it and appeared before the grand jury in January of 07, gave him my complaint, and uh, never heard from him again. You can hear this uh, a conference call with Chris recorded on YouTube. Go to wevgov.com, and in the menu column on the left, you'll see... Uh, YouTube and YouTube 2. Click on YouTube 2 and uh, listen to the audio call on the YouTube video called Tax Grand Jury Properly Informed, No Indictment. And that's a conference call with Chris where he'll outline everything that went down in his encounter with the criminal side of the uh, tax enforcement divisions of our government and uh, listened to how he navigated it, relied on my posture, which is offensive, not defensive. I'm not here as a defendant. I'm here as a criminal counter-complainant. These people should be in prison, not me, and never heard from them again. And since that time, uh, Chris learned what I was doing, and he's helped a bunch of other people join the complaint, and we've watched as people report back to us that I haven't heard from the grand jury in weeks. I haven't heard from the grand jury in a year and a half. 
the criminal investigations division shut down their investigation. And it's because you've acquired enough knowledge of the law to prove that it doesn't apply to you and the arguments overpower any argument they can counter it with. And so the criminal count that where the burden is higher on the government than in a civil instance, in a criminal instance, the burden of proof is higher and a jury is involved. And so they, I'm sure they see getting an indictment and pursuing a criminal trial as a matter of diminishing returns. And so they switch the criminal side off and go after the person's money instead. So anybody that says that uh, my stuff won't be effective, well, on the civil side, when they're trying to get your money, it just might not be effective because there's no jury. And every judge is as corrupt as the day is long. And so somebody might be able to win in court on the civil side, but it's not going to be through using my stuff alone. It's going to take real rigorous litigation, but uh, it can be done. Uh, I I don't like working in civil matters. Uh, I like really hitting them harder on the criminal side. It's uh, the easiest thing to do is to get an indictment under the tax code, and therefore the hardest thing to do is to prevent an indictment, and that's what I've done several times. Uh, Chris and I. So, with these arguments, you overpower the government because this is the structure of law. It's how the law is to be interpreted under these very specific canons of statutory interpretation. The 58 page memorandum I filed with my complaint in 2006 uh, begins with 15 pages of how to interpret statute quotes from Supreme Court cases about how we have to set about interpreting statute because that's all I do in the remainder of the briefing where I brief several key arguments, the ones that do the heaviest lifting. There's probably five or six of them. Uh, the the last argument that I brief is uh, I relied on expert opinion. If you've relied on experts, you're not criminally liable. Experts? Like who? Like the Secretary of the Treasury. I'm relying on regulations. Like Congress. I'm relying on statute. And if anybody knows the law, they do. And this is what they wrote. How's that for expert opinion? I'm not relying on some former IRS agent or, uh, uh, or accountant or tax lawyer like you see in some of these organizations. I'm relying on the Secretary of the Treasury, the Commissioner of IRS, the IRS Legal Counsel, uh, Chief Counsel, and Congress. Those are the people that wrote everything I rely on. So all the way from I'm not subject, it's only regulation, all the way to I've relied on the law. Can you indulge the law at all? No, we can't. And so the, the chances of getting a conviction are greatly reduced. And that's what what I've chosen to, um, to focus on, is the criminal side. 
Now, on the call today, uh, we've got somebody listening who's facing an IRS summons. Uh, I can tell you what not to do right off the mark. Um, uh, email Chris. Chris is going to type in his email address into the chat. Email, oh, the chat is, uh, a lot of people are just on the phone. Get ready to write. I'm going to give you his email address in just a minute in case you're only on the phone, sir. Um, in fact, everybody on today's call, why don't we do this? Uh, Chris is going to give you his email address is AmericanLiberties.llc. That's all one word, no spaces. AmericanLiberties.llc at gmail.com. AmericanLiberties.llc at gmail.com. Email him and ask him for the uh, the uh, let's see the order dash IRS summons order dash IRS summons and he'll email this out to you. It's a 1992 memorandum written by Chief Judge Voorhees in North Carolina where a couple had been summoned to appear and provide records to the IRS and the IRS sued them in court uh, for production of books and uh, they argued a whole bunch of arguments against having to comply with a summons. Uh, and I met these folks uh, through the mail and contacted them and uh, told them what I do. And they said, well, we've already been through the ringer in court. Here's the, uh, the order that we got from the chief judge. And they had argued, we're not taking kickbacks. There's no OMB number on the summons. The IRS agent that issued the summons isn't of a high enough grade level to get a delegation of authority for this. And even if they were, uh, they haven't been delegated the authority. And we're sovereign citizens under this particular, uh, the limited federal government, non-resident alien, and Fifth Amendment objection uh, to providing records and nine arguments in total. And the judge briefs his way out of each and every argument. And it's a spectacle to see that uh, um, I see somebody else is having problems with the audio. Pellet Man, uh, I really apologize for that. It's Takshu's fault uh, if you can call into the call. And re remember... The call is being recorded. You can listen to it again. Uh, and I appreciate your support by appearing on the call. And in a moment, we're going to open up the phone lines and get a couple of testimonials. I see a couple people here that have uh, uh, bought materials, and they'll tell you a little bit about uh, their impression of my teaching abilities. So anyway, email Chris, AmericanLiberties.LLC at gmail.com. I've never offered this before. It's in my courses, but um, IRS or uh, order IRS summons, and this is a tax. Uh, this is a U.S. District Court order to comply with a summons, where the judge briefs his way out of nine arguments that you're going to recognize, 
1992. And people are still arguing a bunch of them. That puts me 23 years ahead of everybody else. Uh, underscoring the statement I make frequently, I am not part of the movement. I will not be associated with those people. The government tries to stigmatize me by saying, oh, patriot movement, sovereign citizen. No, I'm not. Excuse me. I'm a whistleblower. You're breaking the law. Here's how. And you can't deny it. So why are you disparaging me when I've proven you're criminals? So I'm in an, on an entirely different tack. And on my talk shoe page, 59615, 59615. Uh, I just posted a few days ago an interview of Kurt Riggin, three and a half hours. He's my mentor, and I got my attitude from him. When you find out they're violating the law, stand on the law and charge right at them. Don't stop. Go on the offense, be confident in the law, and basically tear their arms off and beat them to the ground with the bloody stumps. <laughs> and uh, the email address for uh, Kurt, uh, I'm sorry, for Chris, is American Liberties at uh, LLC at gmail.com. American Liberties LLC at gmail.com. You'll see this address on the, uh, the inside of wevgov.com also. So anyway, email him. He'll send you that uh, that IRS order to comply with the summons uh, issued by Chief Judge Voorhees in North Carolina. It's something else. I learned a lot from that memorandum early on, how to use running footnotes. Uh, I got it. I already knew how to cite cases, but you watch a chief judge as they cite authorities, where they put the periods, where they put the commas. Um, my uh, talk shoe number is 59615. So listen to the interview with Kurt Riggin. Go to my last page, my earliest page of calls, and the first uh, two calls are interviews with Kurt Riggin as well. He's my best friend and uh, my mentor, and he lives in Colorado, and uh, he, he can prove it. He knows so much about municipal authority under state law and limits of authority and the cop's job, the judge's job, the prosecutor's job, the city council's job, the county council's job. And uh, his specialty is uh, Native American tribal sovereignty. Uh, you got to download those interviews. Download my entire uh, call series. Have at it. They're free. Now, um, so back to, I don't really operate in the civil vein. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of work in litigation, and uh, it's much easier to prevent an indictment now that the arguments are done. The work to come up with the arguments was arduous and exhaustive, but I came up with arguments that rose to the top as the heavy-lifting arguments, and I put those in one format that anybody can exploit. And uh, they, uh, they simply bring the criminal proceedings to a halt. Once they get the indictment, they'll steamroll as hard as they have to to get you in prison. 
It has to be used as a preemptive tool. Pellet Man says Reagan is buddies with Lewis Ewing. Yeah, before that, though, Lewis Ewing and I are creations of Kurt Reagan. Kurt Reagan created both of us, Lewis Ewing and I. In Washington State, uh, Kurt Reagan, Lewis Ewing, and me. Those are the three that rise to the top as uh, litigation warriors on any level. Uh, I can walk into a lot of different types of cases and really crack the whip for somebody that's actually innocent. Uh, Lewis is a research fiend. Uh, he'll spend weeks in the law library getting to the bottom of certain things, and uh, he's a walking seminar. He has a not necessarily photographic memory, but an in, in encyclopedic memory. And uh, he has uh, certain characteristics about him that make him hard to talk to, but when it comes to legal research and uh, knowledge of the law, he is a walking encyclopedia. So anyway, um, the uh, civil side of things is a real difficult uh, challenge. A guy came to me in 2007 and uh, said that he was sued by the Department of Justice for operating an abusive tax shelter. Over a three-year period, he had operated what they call a warehouse bank. That's where he sets up a limited liability company, opens up a bank account for the LLC, and he tells his clients, put your money on account with me, and when it comes time to pay your mortgage, your car insurance, your light bill, whatever, I'll cut a check on my company and pay it for you out of the money you put on account and I'll only charge you a monthly fee, and you get that much banking privacy. And over three years, he had handled $28 million that way, and he was sued for operating a warehouse bank, an abusive tax shelter, because you and I know that if you give an American a little bit of privacy, they're going to commit crimes. Give me a break. So anyway, I told him, you're going to lose. You're going to lose your civil case. But the civil case is just the start of it. The reason they're suing you is so they can get all this discovery and use the discovery against you as evidence in a criminal trial. They're going to indict you later. And so I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you're going to win the civil case. I'll take your case and I'll blow it up. Uh, I'll totally bring it into just the stratosphere. I'll blow it over the moon and try to make it something that they don't want to follow up with a criminal indictment for. So he said, okay, let's go for it. I said, I don't even want to take your case, but I need the money. And so uh, in 90 days after you file your first pleading, you'll have the government pinned to the ground by the throat saying, why can't I arrest them in the courtroom? And 90 days after he filed his first document, he filed a motion for curative instruction saying they don't deny that when they raided my house it was residential burglary, criminal trespass when they accessed my computers, and unlawful imprisonment when they kept me out of my house while they raided it. That's unlawful imprisonment. And so there's felonies. 
because they can't refute that I'm only named in a regulation. None of this case was about compensation for services, so Section 83 didn't come up. And he says they don't deny that I'm named only in regulation, which means they're felons. Can I bring arms into the courtroom to make a citizen's arrest of their person? And what are my rights if the armed bailiff tries to intervene on their behalf? I need instruction from the court. And uh, afterward, he was not indicted. I, I totally blew the case out of in, into thin air by making a nasty mess they didn't want to talk about. And he wasn't indicted afterwards. Anybody that handles $28 million in a warehouse bank Trust me, they're going to be indicted for conspiracy to defraud the United States. He wasn't indicted. And that was a civil case, but the design was to prevent the criminal indictment that certainly would have followed. So I don't really operate on the civil side. It's a lot of work, a lot of briefing, motions, schedules, and all that, deadlines you got to meet. Uh, I know a bunch about it, but, man, it's a lot of work. And, uh, but there's an example of how, you know, I seldom discuss this civil case and my victories take place very quietly because the government just goes away. It's not like it went to a jury and we got the transcripts and they acquitted this guy of tax evasion or willful failure to file. And, and the, you have the Lloyd Long transcripts out there on the web and the Vernice Coogan transcripts and everybody celebrates them as having had a victory when, in fact, all they were was acquitted. They still were run through the ringer. My victories take place without being run through the ringer and very quietly where there is no docket number, there is no jury, and there are no oral arguments or closing arguments, and, uh, and that's a victory when you're not run through the ringer in the first place. So... Uh, that's why I concentrate on the criminal side. Now, if there's anybody on the call who has my materials, uh, why don't we finish this hour with uh, comments to raise your hand. I think it's star six to raise your hand. And, star eight. Uh, I'd like, star eight. eight. I'd, like, I'd like to hear from you about uh, the products you've purchased from wevgov.com. Uh, there's a flash drive that comes with six, uh, seven different video segments three hours, 45 minutes of instruction, where at a whiteboard I explain my treatise of 1994 that I use in this manner, but they're shot in 2003, uh, two and a half years before I filed that criminal complaint with Congress. So you won't hear me allude to that criminal complaint in any of this, but I give you all the diagrams of exactly what I found in the tax code, the soft spots, and the spots where it's plain misenforcement. Uh, there's some uh, some really loud discrepancies between the IRS and the tax code. Codebreaker, the Section 83 equation, is a manual about Section 83. There's the flash drive with the code Codebreaker video segments. Take from Caesar, Volumes 1 and 2. Volume 1 is the congressional complaint. Volume 2 is the supplemental briefing and 
a brief that I wrote for a United States Circuit Court appeal of a tax evasion, one count, uh, guilty plea, where I make the two major arguments. I'm only named in a regulation, and he deprived me of Section 83 and void for vagueness in one briefing. And uh, that's Take from Caesar, Volume 2. When you order materials from wevgov.com, you click on Order, and a shopping cart page will pop up, and you want immediately to enter in the coupon code, the promo code, CHAPPY, C-H-A-P-P-Y, and click Update, and you'll see 10% come off the price of the product. And uh, the, uh, let's see, Take from Caesar Volumes 1 and 2, Codebreaker, the Section 83 equation, the Codebreaker video flash drive, and there's a couple of other courses I added there. If you're, if you're keen on uh, writing criminal complaints of your own, I have the course on how to write and file citizens' criminal complaints, and I have a course called Drive-By Litigation. Both of these come on a flash drive. They operate on your computer like it's a website, and all the documents are in Microsoft Word. So you got a bunch of examples in Microsoft Word if you wanted to write criminal complaints of your own. Uh, there's, I think there's five hours of audio instruction in the course about criminal complaints, and there's 10 hours of audio instruction in drive-by litigation. They include a writing tutorial, how to make your pleadings look uh, very nice, up to speed with the prosecutor. And I comment in there, I instruct that if you're new to writing criminal complaints, you look at the complaints I've written, you choose the format from among the different complaints you have to choose from, and you look at one paragraph that applies to the case that I wrote for, and you say, this paragraph accomplishes a certain thing. For the purposes of this complaint, I'm going to reword it for my complaint, but with the same object in mind. I want to accomplish the same thing, but my case is different, so I'm going to write a paragraph for myself that accomplishes what Dave tried to accomplish by writing this paragraph in the example. So a whole bunch of Microsoft Word documents, and uh, when I type a pleading, I strip all the options off of Microsoft Word down to where it operates basically like a typewriter. I don't want Bill Gates doing my thinking for me. So there's no automatic numbering, automatic indentation, nothing automatic. So you won't have to figure out a whole lot when you try to manipulate one of my documents. So anyway, I'm real glad to be able to offer uh, all these courses, and uh, especially my tax findings. That's my first and highest expertise is the tax code. And what you'll find in my work is a host of arguments nobody else is using. They they, didn't, they don't enter the picture. It's, these are arguments they don't even know because they didn't do as much work as I did. Richard in Dallas has a comment. Chris? Okay. Hi, Richard. How you doing? Hey, Chris. Dave, how you all doing? Good. Great. Hey, uh, Dave's, Dave's right out of money with his tax. It didn't take me a few minutes after I got the uh, the video 
on uh, on 83. Um, and I was referred to Dave by a friend of mine, really outside of the country, she says. And he's right out of money. I've been out there since 93 with this stuff. Traffic, taxes, you know, just just a general general row on us, this government and how how they're they're robbing from us and just take, 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 take. It's a nature of Republican form of government. And I'm real impressed with what Dave has done. Those that uh, want to spend $75 on these videos, you ain't going to go wrong. Uh, start playing them, get your pen and paper out, take notes. Myself, I'm working on a, the re request for lien removal, uh, section 6325. And Dave's stuff is going to nail it on the head. He's helped me out a lot there, what, what he's teaching. So anyone that can in these tight times, go for it. Get the book or get the videos and start understanding this. He's got it, he's got it nailed down real simply. So that's about all now, I have to say, uh, Dave. As you watched those videos, what was your impression regarding the volume of work I've done and uh, the t the amount of time that I must have spent? A tremendous amount. Um, like I said, it only took me a few minutes to grasp the whole concept in a, in a first lines of Section 83. But and I haven't gotten too far in the videos. I'm I'm saddled with a, a stage four stage four emphysema. My health's real real bad psoriatic arthritis, I can't type too well, so I'm going slow. But the volume of, of research that went into laying this out in the manner that you have is it's phenomenal. You know, my hat's off to you. And I'm I'm a competent researcher and writer myself. Uh, and I know what it takes to, to do the research. Like I said, I've been out there since ninety three and I've uh I spent many hours in a law library just looking up stuff before the internet came about. And I, I know what it takes. I know what it takes to, to write a paper. And, uh, I'll Chris tell you what. That. Uh, he's, he's got a document of mine. I, I really enjoyed the Stone Age research where you actually go to the law library, you take a book off the shelf, you turn to the page of the case you wanted to look up, and you read it, you photocopy it, you take it home, and you type the paragraph that you like out of that case. It's really really oh, stone age compared to what you can do now on the internet. I thank God for that. I was, you know, in a big area with SMU and I'd go down there and like I say, copy, copy, copy. And I would even cut and paste. I did a lot of cut and paste and into my word processor and, uh, you know, long before scanners and, and things of that nature. So yeah, the, uh, walking around libraries, libraries, law libraries, it's, it's a good lesson. It's a good lesson. So I can appreciate yes, it. Is. You going back, you know, into the into the eighties and nineties, I've walked your steps, not to the depth in your area, but far far longer in other areas of research that I've gone that no other people have gone. So uh, you know, like I say, my hat's off to you. People can't go wrong and and getting their hands on your research, whether it be the printed or the, the video. Uh it's well worth it. Uh and you're right on the money with the, the section eighty three. And when you look when you look at the uh at the videos in total and number seven is called Tax Code from the Ground Up, where I start with everything about statute that I teach and show you all the protections in the tax code and how it's really perfect. And then I add all the regulations that they wrote to twist the tax code 
and additional elements of misenforcement to show that they took a perfect tax code and created the IRS. When you look at all that, these are just these are just my conclusions. I learned probably 50 times as much about the tax code than I ended up teaching because there's plenty of places where there simply is no argument. So when you see <laughs> my, your when you see when you see what I teach, those are just the discrepancies I found. I'm not teaching you everything I learned about the tax code. I'm only teaching you the places where I found an argument. So I know, or I did at one point, I knew 50 times as much about the tax code as I actually ended up teaching in those videos. Well, you have to go through that that 50 times of the volume in order to get down to the nuts and bolts of it that you have done so well and that, you know, the one statute and, and one regulation. It takes that amount of research. And to, to identify the bad arguments and the ones where it's not going to get you no traction. Right. Which ones do the heaviest lifting? And the ones exactly. that came to the top of the list are uh, Section 83 and I'm only named in regulation. And you look at those two and bingo. In personam jurisdiction is lacking. And you stand there and you hit them with it and hit them with it. And uh, they can't talk. They have to just sit there and take the beating and hope the judge will rescue them. So, you know, I look over the over the years, and and this even got myself, and I can consider myself pretty competent in researching. But that regulation and the, and the word its uh, jurisdiction and focusing on that without even realizing, hey, the statute's got to come first. And I, when I seen that, I said, oh my gosh, how stupid of me. That there's just yeah, it's right there in plain, there's no statute it's right there in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, I I couldn't believe that. I got on my friend and I said, My gosh, how simple this is and how stupid of me to oversee that. It's good though. It's good. When I seen that I said, Wow. Wow, this is simple. But it's it's not then, that simple when it comes to if you want to apply it, like in a sixty three twenty five request for lien removal. But you got to have your eggs in a row. You got to have, you know, get right. and that, so it takes time to write. That's litigation. It's a whole different story over and above the analysis to come to the argument. Now you have to implement it. You have to know how to write a brief. You have to know what a deadline is. You have to know what the obligations of the court is under rule. There's a whole other, you know, research of law is totally different than practice of law. And that's where you stepped off from research into practice of law and more power to you, but uh, back to the research, it's, uh, there's, there's a million things about the tax code, and to, to know a million things and then weigh them out against one another to say which one swings the biggest stick, which one does the most damage, which one carries the most laundry, and uh, then over and above that, be able to write the briefs and everything to tag them so badly that they shut down a grand jury proceeding. Uh, you see that I've really come full circle on this. And uh, the uh, uh, public vehicular travel is another example. It's in the law everywhere from coast to coast. And so I wrote a brief on that. Have you read that off of WeVGov yet, Richard? No, but I'm, I'm well aware of... Uh the vehicle travel. I've done this for several years in my area on different, um, on a different 
ground so than what you have. But there's there's a guy here in Dallas that has researched that going back to '93 and where the commercial aspects. I mean, heck, I've got a little file here on it's titled "Speed Signs" out of Texas statute that uh, the speed signs only apply to those involved in commerce. It says it right there, a quick little paragraph. So if you get a speeding ticket, they can't apply it because it only applies, they can't write it really because it only applies to commercial traffic. Don't apply to the yeah. mom and pop out there uh, driving a car. That's good work, but if you went back to your first motor vehicle code, you'll find very restrictive definitions that don't apply the term motor vehicle to people that simply travel. And uh, it's never been broadened. The statutory scheme has never no, been hasn't. broadened to, to apply to automobiles. And as you say, that's, that's state after state after state after state. It's that way. Right? That's right. Well, well thank hey, you, Richard. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks, Richard. And uh, be sure to tune in to other calls. I sure appreciate your kind words. And it's nice to hear of somebody else that's a long-time researcher that's uh, picking up my arguments. Now, lien removal. Uh, listen to the last couple calls, and uh, we'll put his uh, email address in the chat here. There's a guy here in Washington State that's uh, been using my work, and a couple months ago he got a lien released for $244,000 using Section 83 and the regulation-only argument. And uh, uh, you really ought to contact him, and uh, you might be able to collaborate with the guy and get some uh, information out of him. I'll type in his email address into the chat. Yeah, I was, getting, let, it. I was as, getting it as, now. But go ahead. As we let as we let Chris uh, close out the call, and uh, I want to mm -hmm. thank everybody. I'm sure there's other things you could have done today. Thanks for tuning into the call. I appreciate it, and Richard remember here. Oh, never mind. And remember, remember here on the eight seven four eight eight American Liberties. There's an entire archive where twice a week Chris and I are here discussing uh, these topics. They're the big ones because if you kill these illegal revenue streams, you shrink government down to the size it was always supposed to be, and uh, that's my mission right here. So. Um, oh, Richard says he's already in touch with Don. Great. Yeah. Uh, why reinvent the wheel? And, of course, uh, I, I wish you the, the best of outcomes in uh, attacking that lean, Richard. Okay, Chris, and thanks again, everybody. I'll see you on the next call. Yeah, I'd like to end with uh, saying that, you know, um, if you – uh, if you haven't heard my particular story, go back uh, to the archives to episode 292, Three IRS Stoppers. And, you know, because like everybody, I've been in this since 1988, and I've heard and listened to a lot of, lot of different, you know, scenarios on how to beat the IRS. I don't know if you're ever going to beat them. Uh, I like to look at it as putting a bar up and, you know, come across the bar, if you will, and they can't. And they can't because of the, of the arguments that Dave has brought up. I've never known anybody to win. I'm not, I'm the, I'm not the old cap's name. I'm, 
I'm not the, uh, you know, uh, this is an admiralty. This is, you know, and all these other other things, you know, and the 1099 OIDs and all this other stuff. I've never known anybody to win on those issues. And yet, basically, when it all comes down to, you know, what facts or, or evidence are you relying on that, Title 26 is even applicable to me? That's a great question. But when you show them, and oh yeah, and, the, and my favorite one, you know, that I that I stand against is um, that I personally stand against. Well, the statutes don't apply to me. You know, well, that's just a frivolous statement. But David shows and and articulates how. The statutes don't apply to you. And when you look up, I'm not even named in the statutes and shows who is named in the statutes. It's a reverse, if you will, of how you are not named in the statutes. So when when people like Don and Richard's getting a hold of it and, and so forth, you can use Section 83. You can use I'm not named in the statutes arguments to show that the levies are are being misapplied. The IRS agent himself is misapplying the law, and you can show and articulate your way through it and stop them. Would you say you beat them? I would never say that. I would just say that it's a preventive measure of them coming after you any further if you know what to do and you're willing to do what you know you have to do to get what you want done. And with that being said, God bless America, and this call is officially over.